The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah, and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amenadab, and Amenadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth. Ruth chapter 4 verses 13 through 17. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Matthew 1 verse 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Well, good morning and welcome to the weekly gathering of Christ Community Chapel. My name is Zach. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm so glad you are with us this morning, whether you're here in West Service with me or over in our East Service or watching online. Thanks for being with us a little bit. I'm really excited uh, for the Christmas season, excited for our Advent Sermon Series. I'm sure those of you here are ready for Christmas. Your shopping is done. Nope. And if it's not done, maybe some of you will be shopping even now on Amazon. So uh, knock yourselves out. But I am really excited about continuing our Advent Series, looking at the genealogy, the family tree, the family history of Jesus. You know, we're not looking at the whole genealogy. That would take some time. Instead, we're zeroing in on something unusual about the way Jesus's genealogy is told, and that is that it includes women. Now, everyone's family tree includes women. You know that, and I know that. But at this time, uh, you would not have usually included women in the telling of someone's family. It just would have gone from guy to guy. This guy had this son, and he had this son, and so on and so forth. And yet Jesus' genealogy, for found in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 1, includes multiple women. Now, of course, that is because Jesus' coming is meant to elevate and empower women. Women are an absolutely meaningful and indispensable part of God's kingdom. But there's something more than just that happening in the genealogy of Jesus. And we know that because he could have just toggled from guy to girl. He had this son and she had that son, if that's the only point that he wanted to make. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he intentionally selects four women to include. And I think that's because Matthew is saying not only do women have value, but these particular women, these four individual women, their stories, their lives have something to teach us about the coming of Jesus. And so we're taking this Advent season to look at those four women and to ask about each one of them, what is it that she can teach us uniquely 
about the coming of Jesus. And this week, we're looking at Ruth. Now, there is a book of the Bible dedicated to the story of Ruth. It is aptly named Ruth. So if you have a Bible, I'd love for you to turn it to Ruth or take out your phone and scroll to Ruth. You're watching online, Google the book of Ruth and pull it up. If you do not have a Bible, this is a week that you may really want to have one. So if you're here in the sanctuary, there are pew Bibles in front of you. And if you're in East Hall, you're going to shoot your hand up and somebody is looking for your hand to bring you one. And I looked earlier in one of the pew Bibles. It's on page 222, and one of the other ones is in pay, on page 258, and if it's on neither of those, I did my best, okay? So turn there, and then go left and right and figure it out. It's after the book of Judges, so if you get there, take a right and keep going. So Ruth, the story of Ruth. As you're turning, let me give you my outline I'm going to use to navigate our time together. Three points, and they go like this. Some, I want to show you something necessary, something hidden, and something wonderful, okay? Something necessary, something hidden, and something wonderful. All right, let's start with something necessary. Now, the book of Ruth, which is where, of course, we find the story of Ruth, is an interesting book of the Bible. It is a book about three particular people, Boaz, Ruth, and Naomi, Naomi, the mother-in-law, Ruth, the daughter-in-law, and Boaz, the man who ends up marrying Ruth. You know, it's interesting when you study the book of Ruth that theologians argue about Ruth the way they argue about everything. If you're a theologian, that's called job security. I write a book, you write a book, and we argue with each other. But one of the particular things that they argue about with the book of Ruth is what it should be named, because these are all three meaningful characters. So sometimes people are saying it really should be named Naomi. It's about her. Other people say it should be named Boaz. It's about him. Other people say the name Ruth is correct. But either way, what they're all agreeing on is the significance of these three characters, Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz. And, the, and there is a thread that ties these three characters together that makes their story meaningful and makes it make sense. And that thread is that Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz have this in common. They are all lonely people. The book of Ruth is about three lonely people. Let me unpack it for you. Naomi, the mother-in-law, is in the beginning of the story, the wife to a guy who has two sons with her. And there's a famine in their town. There, there's no food. There's a scarcity of resources. So they decide they're going to pick up and move to a neighboring country where times are a little better, a place called Moab. And they not only move there to avoid the famine, but a day turns into a month, a month turns into a year, and a year turns into a decade. They spend a decade in Moab. They settle there. In fact, their sons marry Moabite women, uh, Orpah and Ruth. They're really putting down roots in the community of Moab. But their time there is marked by loss. In fact, Naomi's husband dies early on in their time in Moab, and obviously that's devastating. But at least while she's there, she still has her sons and their wives and the hope of grandchildren. But over the course of the 10 years in Moab, both of her sons die without 
children. So Naomi goes from the beginning of the story, a wife and a mother and an expectant grandmother to a woman who has lost everyone meaningful to her and is alone. In fact, Naomi experiences a particular kind of loneliness, the loneliness of grief. If you've ever lost anyone, and maybe that's where you find yourself this morning, you know what I mean when I call it the loneliness of grief. Because when you're grieving, people will try to grieve alongside of you, and they do their best, right? They come to the funeral, they, they come to the dinner, they bring you a casserole, they ask you if, they, if you need anything, they tell you that they're praying for you, and that's all really nice and really wonderful. But there's a sense in which what they cannot do is enter into your grief. Because after the funeral is over and the casseroles have been eaten and the guests have gone home, you still have lost your family member. You've still lost your friend. There's a hole in your life where that person used to be and everyone else kind of moves on. That's how it goes. They have to. That's life. But you, and you can't move on, at least not in the way that you had before. Your life has completely changed. And so everything keeps moving. Everything keeps changing. Everyone moves on, but you are alone. Even in a crowded group, even in a busy room, even at work and even at home, you are alone in your grief because your loss is your loss. That's Naomi. That's Naomi. In fact, she is angry in her grief as, as those who grieve are. She blames God. She says that God caused the famine and then God killed her husband and God killed her sons. And she says, I left, with, I left full and I came back to my hometown empty. In fact, when she gets back to her hometown and everyone says, oh, good, Naomi's here. She says, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara, which is a Hebrew word for bitter. That's where she is. In fact, she's so alone in her grief that she tries to push away her daughter-in-law. She says to them, leave. I don't have anything for you. You don't have anything for me. I think in some ways she's saying, you are just a reminder that my sons are dead. You are just a reminder of what I don't have. I want you to go. Naomi experiences the loneliness of grief. Ruth the character that the Bible, or the Bible story is named after experiences loneliness, but of a different kind. Ruth gets married to Naomi's son, and they're married for some period of time less than 10 years, a while. They're married for a while, and yet they do not have children. And then he dies. So now Ruth is not only grieving, but she is facing the idea that the life she wanted, the life she thought she was going to have, she's not going to have. She's watching the women her age have children, raise children, play with their children, and she's realizing, I don't have that, and I'm never going to have that. I don't even have a husband. She's lost that, not only that romantic idea and that relational idea, Idea, but in this culture, children were everything. They helped you bring home resources for the family. They took care of you when you were older. She is facing an uncertain future. Ruth is experiencing the loneliness of lost dreams. If you've ever experienced uh, or, or been around those who've experienced this kind of loss, that have struggled with infertility, 
that have gotten older and are not married and are realizing that the life that you wanted, the life that you had dreamed of, the life you assumed you would have is not the life you're going to have. I read a writer once who said, the pain of this kind of loss is not just the ongoing present sense of I've lost this, but it's the loss of every moment you assumed or you looked forward to. Ruth had plans like any woman. If she had a girl, she was going to put her hair up like this. If she had a boy, she was going to name him this. They were going to have all these family traditions and, and, and rituals. She was going to be the best grandmother ever. And as the story begins, Ruth is sitting in the kind of loneliness that says, the life I wanted and the life I thought I would have and the life I dreamed about, that life is gone. That's a different kind of loneliness. And then, of course, there's Boaz, who we meet in chapter 2. Boaz, who's a successful, affluent, polished businessman. The kind of guy a lot of people would like to be like, and yet Boaz is alone. He's a little older, he's successful, but he doesn't have a wife, and he doesn't have any children. Boaz experiences the kind of loneliness that comes from having everything, and yet no one to share it with. Boaz experiences the kind of loneliness that comes from maybe over-investing and over-extending yourself in one area of life, your career, to the exclusion and the detriment of every other area. Boaz sits in his living room next to the fireplace with all the nice things and yet is by himself. Three lonely people, different kinds of loneliness, but lonely all the same. Now, when I was originally working on the sermon this week, I was going to call this first point something difficult because I don't know if there's anything more difficult than loneliness. I don't know if there's anything more soul-crushing than sitting in a room like this full of people and yet feeling utterly alone, alone in your grief, alone in losing your dreams, alone in not having anyone to share life with. That is incredibly difficult. But I wanted you to see something, that it's necessary for us in a world of loneliness, living lives of, lives of loneliness, to see that the inclusion of Ruth in the genealogy of Jesus is telling us something about God's heart for lonely people. That she's included because God wanted us to know that people like her, people like Naomi, people like Boaz, have a place in what he's doing. Here's what I mean. Two weeks ago, I told you that I really don't want to drive a wedge between Christmas and Advent. There's nothing wrong with Christmas. There's nothing wrong with Christmas traditions and Christmas songs and Christmas trees and Christmas presents. And I hope you have a wonderful Christmas. But there is a difference between Christmas and Advent. And here's what I mean. Christmas is a season for people whose families are full. Christmas is a season for people who have stockings on the mantle, presents under the tree, family gatherings to look forward to. Every marketing campaign for Christmas is for people whose lives are happy and cheerful and merry and full of people and are not alone. And what happens is in our grieving, in our losing, in our longing, in our loneliness, Christmas can feel very distant to us and maybe it should. There's a thinness to Christmas, but not to Advent. 
Not to the longing and expecting and waiting for the coming of Jesus. Ruth is included because Christmas is for people who, whose lives are full. But Advent, Advent, the coming of Jesus is for lonely people. It's for Ruth's and Naomi's and Boaz's. And so if you find yourself here feeling very disconnected and very distant from Christmas, if you look at your calendar and you've got nothing coming up that you're excited about, the coming of Jesus, the inclusion of Ruth in the story of Jesus is God's way of saying, I see you and you are part of what I'm doing. Let me show you that in my second point, something hidden. I told you that Naomi blames God for everything that's happened to her. What she's really asking is the question that every lonely person asks. In my grieving, in my losing, in my longing, in my loneliness, where is God? And since she can't see God doing anything, she assumes that what he is doing is everything bad that's happened to her. You're looking for God in the book of Ruth and he's hard to find. In fact, God is only mentioned twice in the entire book in terms of what he does. Now, lots of people talk about him in the book, but he is only active twice, once in chapter one and once in chapter four. Where is God in the book of Ruth? Where is God in our loneliness? That's the question the book is asking. And I want you to see that God puts it in the Bible because it's okay to ask that. It's okay to feel that. That's why it's here. And I want you to see that actually there are five ways God shows up in the book of Ruth. Oh, by the way, I hate lists and sermons, so I apologize for this. But I need you to see that while you're looking for one really big moment, God is actually present in, all over the book in five different ways. Let me walk through them for you. Here's the first way. God is present in the circumstances of the story. Naomi blames God for the famine. She blames God for the death of her husband and her sons. And here's the thing, there's precedent for that. I mean, there are times in the Bible where natural disasters are the result of God's judgment. There are times in the Bible where someone dies because God is angry with them. If you remember two weeks ago, both of Tamar's, her husband, and then the guy who assaulted her, Onan, both die because God is angry with them. That happens. But here's something you need to know. You know how you know in the Bible that God causes the natural disaster or that God causes the death? You know how you know? He tells you. He tells you. That's why when you read the story of Tamar, it says an Onan died because God was mad at him. You don't have to, you can connect the dots. They're connected for you. Here in the story of Ruth, that is not happening. And the reason why is because God is not causing the famine and God is not causing the deaths of her husband and her sons. Here's the reality. Natural disasters happen. Death is a biological certainty. Life gets hard sometimes. But that doesn't mean God isn't working. In fact, in chapter 1, we're told it's God who ends the famine. In chapter 4, we're told that Ruth, who in her first marriage could not have children, no matter how hard she tried, that it is God who touches her and causes her to be able to get pregnant so that she can have a baby. God is active in her circumstances. You know what this makes me think of? It makes me think of Christmas presents. Here's what I mean. You know I have five kids, which means no matter what I get them for Christmas, it's expensive. 
Okay? And I have to constantly make sure that kid one isn't thinking that kid three gets more and kid two. Oh, by the way, I don't call them kid one and kid two and kid three. Okay, just for your benefit. So I have to make sure they think it's fair. And so every now and then I ask them, what, what do you want for Christmas? How I get ideas, right? And I asked my five-year-old, Graham, what do you want for Christmas? And he said, I want a remote control car you can control with your mind. I thought, well, shoot, that doesn't exist, right? So now I'm terrified that I've bought him all these presents and he's not going to appreciate any of them because none of them are a remote control car you can control with your mind. I'm worried that he's going to be so busy looking for the gift that he wants, he's going to miss all the gifts I've given him. And that's the danger with God, isn't it? We know what we want from God. We know the way we want him to show up. And the danger is we're so busy looking at that and what he's maybe not doing that we miss all the things that he is doing. And the book of Ruth tells us that he may not stop the famine. He may not spare the life of our husband or our sons. Death happens. Bad things happen. But that doesn't mean he's absent. He's stopping the famine. He's causing a woman to be able to get pregnant. He's doing Things. The book of Ruth tells us that sometimes we're so busy looking for what we want, we miss what God is doing. He is active in our circumstances. Here's a second way. I love this. In relationships. I told you that the book of Ruth is about three lonely people, but one really cool thing in the book is that every time there's a lonely person, there's somebody in relationship with them telling them wonderful things about God. So for example, in chapter one, Naomi is grieving. Her husband's died, her sons have died. She's pushing everyone away. Her one daughter-in-law, Orpah, tries to hang in there, but Naomi's so bitter and so angry, and she just says, leave, go, and she leaves, but Ruth stays, and Ruth doesn't stay for Naomi. Here's what she says. She says, listen, your God is my God, and in his name, in the name of Yahweh, I promise you, I'm not going anywhere. Do you know what she's saying? She's saying, Naomi, I know you're hurting. I am too. I know you're bitter. I understand. But God loves you. And to show you that, I'm staying. But in chapter two and in chapter three, when Ruth meets Boaz and is freaking out that she's going to mess it up, it's Naomi who says to Ruth, ah, I see what God is doing. I, oh, I see what he's doing. I know how to navigate. Don't worry. I got this. I see what God is doing. In chapter two and chapter three, when Ruth is going, how will we eat? Boaz says, I will take care of you because that's what God wants. In chapter four, when Boaz and Ruth and Naomi are having a, a wedding party, it's the community around them saying, we see that God is doing something amazing. Listen, and sometimes the way God shows up is the person to your left and the person to your right. And the truth is, if you and I are in community long enough, there are going to be times where I'm the lonely person and you're telling me, I see what God is doing. Hang in there. There are going to be times that you're the lonely person and I'm going to be saying, hang in there. I see what God is doing. That's a way that God shows up. Here's a third way. This is really cool. In his rules. You say, what? Rules? Rules are the worst. God gives us rules to limit us, to inhibit us, to destroy us. No, that's what Satan said in Genesis 3. But God is good and he wants us to flourish and his rules are always designed to help us flourish so that when Ruth and Naomi show up back in town in chapter 2 and they have nothing, 
And Ruth goes to a field and begins to work in the corner, just picking up what the, what the harvesters have missed and what they've dropped. She isn't shooed away. She isn't pushed away. She isn't intimidated or imprisoned or yelled at. She is welcome. Do you know why? Because in the Old Testament law, God said, here's how I'm going to take care of widows. Don't harvest the corner of your fields. Let them do it so they can eat. You see, God had taken care of Ruth years ago in his rules, in his law, so that when she comes to Boaz and she says, you're being so generous to me, Boaz says, whoa, 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 hold on. You are coming up under the wings of God. Boaz says, listen, I'm a businessman. If it were up to me, I'd be selling this. This is like 5% of my profit. I'm doing this because this is what God wants. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. But sometimes the way God has designed to take care of us is if we would live his way, obey him, we would flourish. Those around us would flourish. They'd be taken care of. And here's a fourth way, in patterns. There's this beautiful scene in chapter 4 when Ruth gives birth to Obed right before that. And the women of the town are saying to her and to Boaz and to Naomi, may God treat you like Leah. May God treat you like Tamar. What are they saying? They're saying, Ruth, we know you're a Moabite woman who feels forgotten. But here are some stories we know of God's faithfulness. God was faithful to Leah. Do you remember Leah? The ugly sister, the forgotten sister that Jacob married, the one he didn't love, the one her dad had to trick him into marrying. It was Leah that gave birth to the son that God made the inheritor of his covenant. Do you remember Tamar from two weeks ago? What they're saying is we've seen God work in the past. We've seen his pattern. We know how he keeps his promises. What he did for Leah, what he did for, for uh, uh, Tamar, he will do for you. By the way, Boaz understood this because who was his mother? Rahab, a Gentile prostitute. And Boaz says to Ruth, don't worry, I've seen God do this before with my mom. Sometimes the way God shows up is his faithfulness in the past tells us what he's going to do in the future. Here's my point. Here's my point. You look for these big moments in the story of Ruth, and maybe it doesn't come, but you have these four ways that God shows up, four little threads that on their own you might laugh off, but together form this rope on which you can hang on to for dear life. God is present for lonely people. He's present in their circumstances. He's present in their relationships. He's present in the rules of his people, calling them to care, calling them to serve. He's present in the patterns of his faithfulness in the past. Listen, the book of Ruth is designed for lonely people to know he has not forgotten you, even when it seems like he has. You'll notice I left the fifth way off. Some of you list keepers, you're, you're nervous. I'm going to give it to you. But it's my third point, something wonderful. Because the fifth way God shows up is in his promise. It's in his promise. This is a wonderful scene that we read in chapter 4 when Boaz has married Ruth, and they've had a baby. I mean, think about Ruth. Like, she goes from thinking, I'll never be married again. Now she's married. Of course, we're not going to have kids. I know I can't. She probably told Boaz that. I want you to know I, I don't think I can have children. Then they have a baby. But the beautiful scene, the most beautiful scene, is at the end of chapter 4 when that little baby is on the lap of Naomi. 
Naomi, who was raging in chapter one. Naomi, who was alone in chapter one. And she's holding the baby and she's praising God for his faithfulness. And the women of the village actually name the baby, which is a little presumptuous, but they do it anyways. And they say, you're going to name him Obed. And Obed is a Hebrew word that means servant. And they say this because he has served you, Naomi. In your loneliness, in your grief, this baby has come to bring you out of loneliness, to bring you out of grief, and to bring you into hope. But of course, if you read the story of the Bible, it doesn't end with Obed. Obed has a son named Jesse. Jesse has a son named David. More sons, more guys, more girls, all the way into Matthew 121, when Obed's great, 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 and some more greats grandson comes, and his name is Jesus. And of course, the coming of Jesus is indicative of God's care for lonely people. Jesus is the God of the universe drawing near to us in our loneliness, not hanging out in heaven, not telling us to get over it, not shouting at us his love, but Jesus is God coming to us. And when Jesus comes, do you know what he becomes for us? Because of our sin, because loneliness is the consequence of sin. I don't mean that you're lonely because you're a sinner. I mean, we've sinned and broken our world. And because of that, people die. And because of that, people struggle. And because of that, people are alone. And Jesus, who never sinned, goes to the cross, takes on our sin, and instantly becomes lonely. Forgotten. Alone. Abandoned. Even on the cross saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the answer is because he became our sin and became lonely and died under that loneliness in order that he might raise from the dead, ascend into heaven, sit at God's right hand, and to begin to build an eternal future for us wherein we will never be lonely again. You see, Advent is the promise that God cares so much about lonely people, he came to them and he became a lonely person in order that he might die for our sin and promise and ensure and guarantee and invite us into a future in which we will not grieve, our dreams will not be lost, and we will never be alone. Listen, that's Advent. That's Advent. That God cares so much about your grief, so much about your lost dreams, so much about your isolation, that he came to promise you a future wherein you will never be alone. One of the really cool things to think about is that when baby Jesus was laying in the manger, for all we know, he had Tamar's ears, Rahab's nose, Ruth's forehead, Because these hurting people, these women, literally shaped him. Because God wanted you to know that Christmas may feel distant. It may feel fake to you. It may even make you feel worse. But Advent, Advent is proof that God sees you. Proof you're not alone. And proof, if you grab hold of Jesus, you will never be alone again. Will you pray for us? Father God, thank you for your heart for lonely people. Even the book of Ruth, it's really not important for the story. It's really not a super necessary book. That's probably why there's so many people here who have never read it. 
Maybe you didn't even know about it. It's not in here because it's a vital part of the story you're writing. It's in here because lonely people are a vital part of the kingdom you're building. What a good God you are. And I pray that we might begin to believe that for the first time or yet again. I pray for those that are grieving. I pray for those that are missing out on the dreams they thought they would have. I pray for those who bought themselves a lot of Christmas presents but don't have anyone to share it with. I pray for them that they would know you see them and you love them and they are meant to be included in what you're doing in Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.